this. Um, I'm going to read something to you real quick before we get to where we're going. This is out of Revelation chapter 7. And uh, John says here, after I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every nation, from every nation, from all tribes and all people and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. These are the words of people from all nations. I love where I live, but our heart and our prayers and our songs should be for this group, this group. God is doing something much bigger than where we live. And we should all love where we live and we should all pray hard for the nation and the people and the place that we live. But please do not forget that this is a universal salvation. Please be praying for the nations. Please be praying for the places that are not like the place we live. Because there are some, there's some hard ones out there. And glory be to God through everything that he does throughout the globe. His name will be proclaimed, lifted up, mighty, worshiped forever and ever by all of them. And so I just, I, I, I want to, I, I think if your tendency is like mine, it's to, um, it's to not always see far beyond uh, my realm that I live in. And, and that's part of why I love the Bible is it's always, it's always taking us outside of that realm. It's, it's, it's blowing it open. It's showing us something much bigger than our lives and how far our thoughts go, and how far our concerns go. And so pray for your brothers and sisters in other nations that they would meet the Lord, that his name would be glorified even there as well, all right? And then, of course, thank God for where you get to live, because it ain't a bad spot. All right. Ecclesiastes. Some of you right now that are familiar with your Bibles are going, what are we doing? And some of you have no idea what you're in for right now, um, but you're, you're about to. Uh, we finished First Peter, and we were thinking, like, like what's, what's a book that, that speaks today? What's a book that makes sense today? What's, what's a book that, that is very relevant, that needs to be heard um, by people that are hopeless, without hope, even listening to you, Peggy, again, what you shared today just reminded me right then when you shared that, like, we're doing the right book right now. We are doing the right book right now. And you're going to see why as soon as I read through it. If you look at your Bible closed with the pages up and you open it almost dead halfway, you're, you're going to be close to hitting Ecclesiastes. If you go to Proverbs, hang a right. If you go to Song of Solomon, hang a left. All right? And you'll find it. Not very big, 12 chapters. And um, I think what we're going to do as we go through this book is we're probably not going to um, just uh, uh, do an exposition on every verse. There's going to be things we hit and then things that we take from a higher elevation, okay? And, uh, and the reason is because if we didn't do it that way, we would all be probably loading our shotguns uh, when we're done with this. Like, it's, it's, um, you'll see why. So, all right. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's read through this real quick. Starting in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. How many of you have ever been to Disneyland? About half, you know, you're ready to go again right now. How many of you have ever been to a cemetery? Which one do you think is better? Are you trying to be funny, dude? I actually think so, but that's how dark I am. Which one do you think is better for you? These are things that I say to myself when I go to Disneyland. And by the way, like I grew up right there. So like I was kind of a spoiled, privileged kid. And um, there, would be, there would be Saturdays where we'd wake up and dad and mom would be like, yeah, hop in the car like we're going to go to Disneyland for the day. Like it would be a spontaneous thing. And so like I have all this nostalgia there. My wife does too. And so we try to go back even as adults regularly. Uh, we were there a few years ago. These are things that I find myself saying to myself while I'm spending a day in Disneyland. What am I going to ride first? What am I going to eat first? When is the line going to be shortest for Pirates of the Caribbean? I should have wore different shoes. When should I get my next churro? Their churros are good, I don't know why. Oh, their churros are awesome. <laughs> it's hot, I need to get on a water ride. All right. And then finally, I wish the day wouldn't end. I don't want to go back to reality, et cetera, et cetera, okay? These are things that I say to myself when I'm in a cemetery, and actually I do go to cemeteries a lot. I, I, I'm sorry, I enjoy them. I, I like walking through them. So if we go to a town, or especially we like ghost towns, we like the West, um, that's my spot. Like we go there, we look at headstones, we. You know, you contemplate, I don't know. But these are things that I say when I walk through a, a, a cemetery. What were these people like? What were their lives like? How have I lived my life? What kind of person am I? What have I lived for? Who have I lived for? Where are these people now? And finally, I really need to go back to Disneyland. Which one is better for me? Which one is more beneficial, would you say? Here's a proverb for you. Sorrow is better than laughter. Isn't that great? can be dismissed. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is just going to get better, too. I'm not going to disappoint you. Solomon's going to tell us in chapter 7, verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, it's better for us, those who still live, to go visit the dead. It's better for us as people now. Why? Because sorrow is where we do most of our growing. It's where we do pretty much all of our growing. It's where God does some of his best work in us. It's in, it's, it's in the reflecting that is done in sorrow. It's in the contemplating. It's in the self-examination that goes on. Not of the trivial stuff, but of the big stuff in our lives or in life in general. I do not grow when I go to Disneyland. 
I um, shrink. You know what I'm saying? I become a kid again, like instantly. That's why I go there. I go there to take a few years of maturity off, not add them. I go there to simplify. I go there to ignore. I go there to forget. I go there to check out. I go there to escape. Escape what? The big stuff. The big questions, the inevitabilities of life, the grind that we find ourselves in, the sorrow. A cemetery does not allow you to escape. A cemetery takes all the big stuff and it puts it in your face as to make it impossible for you to ignore. All of that to say, we're about to walk through a cemetery for a couple months. And that cemetery is called Ecclesiastes. We may not want to walk through it. We may not enjoy walking through it. We may not feel good as we walk through it. But it is necessary from time to time to walk through one. First of all, the word Ecclesiastes in the, in the Hebrew is kohilet, which simply means preacher. We're going to see this word right in, right in the opening line. Preacher. It's where we get the Greek, the, the Greek word uh, ekklesia. Does anybody know what that word is? What that word means? It's where we get church. It's where we get called out. It's where we get the assembly or the gathering. And so when you put these two together, you kind of have an idea of a preacher or somebody who has something to say to the multitude. In other words, this book is written for all to hear. This book is known as wisdom literature. We have a section in our Bible or a few books that are categorized as wisdom literature. They are Job, they are Proverbs, they are Ecclesiastes. We will find Ecclesiastes to be a little bit different than Solomon's other work, which is Proverbs, because there in Proverbs we saw the maturity of Solomon's wisdom, but here we're going to see the foolishness of Solomon's wisdom. And yet, even though we're going to see Solomon play the fool, it's still going to impart to us wisdom. We're going to come out of it with wisdom if we do this right. And I want you to know that wisdom is not about IQ. I hope you guys know that. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about retaining lots of information. It's not about um, being highly educated or thoroughly educated. Wisdom is ultimately about rightly dividing and rightly discerning that which you observe. That's wisdom. It's the ability to see right, okay? It's a proper interpretation of that which is around you. And though this is in large part dark, a dark book, Solomon is going to help us see some things properly, right? The word vanity is going to occur 37 times in these 12 chapters, 37 times in this book. The key phrase, under the sun, will occur 29 times in this book. Another phrase that we're going to see over and over again is, I have set in my heart, or I have set my heart to know, which tells us that we're getting the conclusions that we would expect to find when we see that phrase, when we look inwards to ourselves, which is what Solomon is in large part doing here. When we look to ourselves for solutions, when we look to ourselves for answers, we will come up empty. We are the problem. We are reason, the reason we are in the mess that we are in right now. It is an impossibility for us to find a solution for that which we've created from that same spot. We have to look outside of ourselves for a solution. We need something or someone outside of us to bring us answers. But Solomon's going to continually, as we see, look into himself and let us in on what he's observing there. All right. 31 times we'll be asked questions to which we are not given an answer. A lot of them are rhetorical. A lot of them are just, again, this is contemplative. This is a cemetery. He wants you to think about some stuff. The questions that are asked, though, are intended to make us think, to shake us, to cause us to question what we really believe about ourselves, about life, and about purpose, and about meaning. I remember the first time when I was a young Christian that I ever read through this book. 
that I ever saw the book Ecclesiastes and took a look at it, I immediately had two thoughts. My first thought was, this is rad. Like, this is a super cool book. Because I thought I was the only buddy that, the only person that thought like this. I thought I was the only one that had twisted thoughts and dark thoughts and maybe different thoughts that, I, that, that, that humans weren't supposed to have, certainly not people that went to church. And so I remember looking at this book going like, what's up? I'm not the only, I'm not the only one who thinks like this, All right? The second thing that I thought is how in the world did this ever get into the Bible? How in the world did this book ever make it into the Bible? How was this allowed? in the canon of scripture? How in the world do you take a narrative that is so bleak and depressing and melancholy and work it into the story of redemption and promise and abundant life and hope? Which brings us, excuse me, to a few reasons why you and I need to pay attention to the book of Ecclesiastes. Why Ecclesiastes speaks today, today. Number one, This book speaks today because it corrects our ongoing temptation to find our fulfillment and joy in this world apart from God, which I don't know about you, but I still tend to do or try or attempt. We are reminded how dreadful the thought is. Do you remember what it was like for you pre-Jesus in your life? Do you remember what was going on inside of you? Do you remember what was going on in your thoughts? I I very clearly remember very little real meaning, very little real purpose in what I did or what was going on around me or where I was going or why any of it mattered. I remember all of that changing really quickly once the Lord crashed into me. This book, more than any other, kills our idols. It kills our idols. It kills all of our gods that we continually attempt to follow in fashion in hopes of finding happiness there. Whether it's education or knowledge or government or pleasure or companionship or creation, nature, Work, achievement, accomplishment, gain, possessions, purchases, power, accolades, reputation, on and on and on. This book kills all of them. All of them. It reminds us that the world is incapable of satisfying the heart because the heart is too big for the object. It needs something bigger. So number one, this book preaches today, it speaks today because it corrects our ongoing tendency towards idolatry. Number two, it's important that we go through this book. It speaks today because it allows us to understand, and again, when Peggy was talking, this just hit me here. It allows us to understand the people that we are trying to reach. Everybody in the world knows that there's something terribly wrong with the world. Our understanding as Christians of this book allows us to sympathize with them. It allows us to feel what they feel. It allows us to even agree with what they feel. It allows us to sympathize with their godless plight, thus creating in us a heart to bring hope to the hopeless. What we see here in Ecclesiastes, if we boil it down, is basic, honest human philosophy apart from God, which actually equates to pointlessness. Man has tried throughout history to be happy without God, and it's still being tried every single day by millions of people. And this book shows us the absurdity of that attempt. Ain't there. Again, In reading this book, it should create in us a strong desire to bring these hopeless people to the fountainhead of happiness, fulfillment, and purpose, which is their creator. Because of this, the book of Ecclesiastes will preach. It will evangelize. It will convert. And it will save. And so we preach it as a church. The third reason why 
the book of Ecclesiastes speaks today and we should go through it is because it bridges some clear gaps between our Bible and the contemporary world. Some clear gaps. It displays that the Bible is much smarter than people give it credit for. It shows us that the Bible is far more honest and thus far more trustworthy than people think it is. And it does it by the honest exposure of shared human realities that we all know to be true. This is one of the things that I love about the Bible, is that it doesn't lie to me. It doesn't lie to me. It doesn't try to dress something up or put makeup on just to get me in the door and then remove the makeup and be like, like, what am I doing in here? Like the Bible doesn't do that to us. It doesn't always just put its best foot forward as if it's trying to hide something. Don't you hate those, those commercials? I think they're the, um, like the pharmaceutical ones where like they, they come up with like, you know what I'm talking about already, don't you? And they seem to be like a half hour long, even though they're like probably two minutes. And, and you get on there and it's like, hey, we've got this, you know, this, new, this new cure for this condition. And it's got people running around, you know, in a sunset, you know, skipping. And, and they're just, like, great because they found relief of their condition. And then you get to the back and, like, really quiet and really quickly, it's like, it will make your butt melt. It will make your eyes catch fire. You know what I mean? It will make horns grow out of your fingernails. You know, like, it, like it throws all, like, basically, like, like, we have a cure for your condition, but it's going to kill you. So you know, don't, don't even consider it, right? Like, but they, but they lead with just this, this just grand picture of relief and solution. And then you get, you get in there and you're like, gosh, that sounds fantastic. And it's just like, there's no way. There's no way I'm taking this stuff. There's no way I'm ordering this drug, right? The Bible doesn't do that. I love the Bible because it doesn't lie to me. And it doesn't lie to you. There is no reason for a Christian ever to be ashamed of carrying the word of God before non-believers, before godless people. Because it is so honest. It is so exposing. It's funny how the people that don't know anything about the Bible like to call it primitive. As if it's something that's on the wrong side of history now. Those people clearly have never read it. Because when you read the Bible, it's revealing stuff that, that no one can know. And we know it's true. Ecclesiastes is one of those books that kind of takes us on that journey where you look at it and you go, I can't believe, I can't believe the word of God is saying this stuff right now. Like, what's up? Like, is this a malfunction? Is this a book that shouldn't have made the canon? Like, what's happening? It doesn't lie to us. I want us to make sure that even though many of Solomon's thoughts and conclusions may not always be inspirational, a cemetery, the scriptures that contain those thoughts and conclusions are fully inspired. Let me say that again. I want to make sure that we know that even though many of Solomon's thoughts and conclusions may not be inspirational, the scriptures that contain those thoughts and conclusions are fully inspired. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, God put them there. God wants them there. God wants you and I to hear them. He wants you and I to look at them. He wants you and I to meditate on them. He wants you and I to understand them and pay close attention to this book. And because that's true, because God's put it there, we can expect uh, blessing and we can expect growth. So, all right, now the text. That's the hard part is trying to get into an introduction for a new book, like as quick as possible, especially when it's hot here like it is. Verse 1, we're going we're gonna to clip through this pretty good, so don't, we'll, we'll keep it moving. Verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who is this? It's Solomon. I'm just, like, there's critics out there and others that will say it's not Solomon. I'm just going to go with Solomon. The other pastors are going to go with Solomon. There's really no good reason to think it's not Solomon. If you're interested in some kind of a controversy or a question about that, go home and have fun. Knock yourself out. We're going to preach it as if this is Solomon that's, that's written this book, all right? So there's, the, there's the, 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 the briefest, you know, clip I can give you on that, all right? It says, son of David, king of Israel. That's who Solomon is here. He's the wisest man that's ever lived. That's who this is. It says, the preacher. 
which we already kind of alluded to. It simply means the one who has something to say. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's a preacher like I'm a preacher in which like every week I'm going to get up and I'm going to preach the word of God to you. The preacher just means that there is something that they have that needs to be proclaimed to the masses. Okay? There's something they have that needs to be heard. And so in that sense, Solomon is the preacher here. And again, we get the name of our book in the Hebrew from that. It's one who has something to share with the gathered people. Verse 2, he says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, we need to have a decent idea of what this word means because, like I said earlier, he's going to use it frequently, like 37 times in this book. And so what does it mean? Well, there are a few nuances and variants of meaning in this Hebrew word, but this word primarily means, basically, emptiness, futility, vapor. Emptiness, futility, vapor. Okay? And he's saying that's what everything is. So, breath. Ever been outside on a cold night? You see what happens to your breath? You can see it come out. Sometimes you can see it come out so strong that it blocks your vision. But what happens if you try to touch it? What happens if you try to grab it? What happens if you try to hold on to it? Lay hold of it. Nothing. It's not there. It disappears. What happens when you look at it for more than 10 seconds after it comes out? It's gone. It eludes you. It disappears. It's pointless. I'm 47 years old, and I have no idea where the heck my life went. No idea. And every year, the older I get, it's like someone's got their foot on the gas pedal. It just goes faster and faster and faster. What happened to those days when I was a kid? And it seemed like an eternity between Christmases. You know what I'm saying? Not anymore. This thing is out of control right now. It is just going and going and going. The older you get, the faster it goes. What Solomon is saying as it pertains to life is I watch it, I see it, I smell it, I taste it, I touch it, I experience it, but every bit of it is vapor. All of it. It's all futile. He's saying that just like vapor, it's elusive. You cannot catch it. You cannot hold on to it. It's empty, fading, fleeting, faulty. It disappears. And therefore, it's meaningless. Isn't that great? Welcome to church. It's all meaningless. I debated within myself sharing this this morning, but I think I'm going to, just to give you a little peek into my Madness. Because this is part of the reason why um, I think I was so, like, excited to see a book like this in the Bible. Is because this is, I, I live it many times in a lot of darkness. I know a lot of you do. I don't think I'm unique. I, don't, I, I think a lot of us, there's things that are just common to man. There's things that are common to all of us living in a broken world where things aren't right. And a lot of times, I, even though outwardly I think maybe I'm, I'm more optimistic, I think I'm, I'm, I'm maybe more outgoing inside, I'm just having a funeral almost all the time. Okay? And one, one of the ways that I do that, don't laugh at me, Justin, one of the ways that I do that is I can be in the best setting with the people I love doing the things that I love the most, and everything is perfect. Everybody's having the greatest time. It's everything I imagined it would be. And this happens all the time. But I'm miserable in the midst of it. And the reason is because I'm already, I'm already thinking forward to when it's over. In other words, because I'm, you guys are all looking at me sideways. Um, because I'm already looking at the, the depressing thought, the futility of that moment that I'm having, I'm actually unable to enjoy the moment that I'm having because I'm already projecting on the reality that it's going to be gone. This is what Solomon's doing with us here. That's the best way I know how to explain it. He's inviting us to wallow in that kind of depression and that kind of meaninglessness with him about the world around us. And it's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. But I want you to know, again, this is common a man. This will preach. This is a connecting point. I don't care what their background is or where they're from. This is a shared human 
philosophy. This is true, especially for any atheist who's actually one. And it will preach. You can have a good discussion. But this is what Solomon's inviting us into. He's saying, yeah, you can have fun, you can laugh, you can have good moments, you can have blessings, you can enjoy things, but the, but the bottom line is that it's all, it's all like that breath that comes out of your mouth on a cold night. It's, it's, uh, it's gone like that, and then what? It's all for nothing. Nothing left. Verse 3. What does man gain by all, the, uh, by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Um, he wants us to answer that, but he's also basically, he's already, with verse 2, he's already shown his hand as to how he would answer that, uh, which is nothing. Man gains nothing in all of his toil. Uh, the thing that's in question here in this verse, verse 3, is the word gain, a.k.a. profit. Some of your translations, depending on what you're using, might still use the word, interpret it profit. And that just basically means that which we have to show for all of our hard work. It's that which we have to show for all of our hard work, all of our toil. And you might say, well, I've got quite a bit to show you as a result of my hard work and toil. I've got a house, I've got cars, I've got guns, I've got ammo, which you need a lot of money for. I eat well, I might have sent a couple kids through college or school, etc. So yeah, this is true. Now, you want to hear something super depressing? Um, because you guys haven't heard anything depressing yet? Um, everything that you own, have built, have worked for will someday be somebody else's or it'll simply cease to exist. Moth and rust will get it, like the Bible talks about. Isn't that cool? Everything you have right now, it's, it's, it's either going to end up being somebody else's or gone. Therefore, not only is it vaporous, I don't even know if that's a word, but it sounds rad, like in that context, so I'm going with it. But it's in that sense also meaningless. It's also meaningless now. Have you ever gone to the junkyard and observed the pile that you're throwing your pile into? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you're looking at stuff and you're seeing, you're seeing furniture and you're seeing this and you're seeing that. And I went there one time and, and um, I saw this big book like, gosh, I shouldn't even go into this because it's going to be a long story. I'll try to make it as short as I can. I showed up to the junkyard one day, and it was jam-packed. This is when not landfill used to be outside. They didn't have this nice, comfortable inside thing. And it was outside, and it was just cold rain, just storming like crazy. And it was packed. And so I had to wait there for a while in my car for someone to pull out and then pull into that spot, right? And this thing, I don't know how, how many yards wide this was, but they had this thing opened up. And I get there, and I'm looking around, and the rain's just beating down, and I look over, and here's this book sitting here, like on a top of just a pile of mud and garbage. And it was a big, thick book, like it looked like an important book. And I was like, what the heck, you know? So I kind of like start like, like tiptoeing out there to this book, and people are just at this point, like it's pouring, like we're at the dump, it's bad. People are just like, what's this dude doing? Like he must have like thrown something, like his car keys out there or something. And I tip out there and I look and, and it's like um, Matthew Henry's commentary. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's a, that's, a Bible, that's a Bible commentary. So I pick this thing up and I go back and I look out again and here's another one. And then here's another one and another one and another one. And I'm just excited at this point. I was like a young kid and a young Christian. I'm like, this is incredible. And I could tell that they were like the same book from the same volume. I ended up getting the whole volume out of that dump. I had to park in that right place, you know what I mean, for me to see it that day. And then I, and then I see another one, and it's uh, McGee. And I got McGee's whole commentary out of there. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself with these stacks of books, like, what's the story behind these? Why are these in the dump? Why don't these have value to somebody? And the, and the thing I could come up with is that, like, some dude died that loved the Lord or maybe even was a pastor, the kids had to come who don't care about the Lord and clean his house out. And uh, they're, just, they're, just trying, they're just trying to clean this stuff up. They're just taking books of dad's stuff that's meaningless to them, that's meaningless to them, and throwing it out in the pile. And this is what you see a lot of times when you go to the dump. You see something that was once somebody's gain and profit now become the landfill's gain. 
meaningless. Nothing there. Those things, though, they're on my shelf in my office at home, and I still use them. It's funny that that even happened, but my game for now. This is a true observation that Solomon's making, even though it's a total bummer. But if you haven't figured it out yet, this is the worldview. This is a worldview that he's presenting us that is purely horizontal. It is not vertical. It's purely horizontal. These are the inevitable truths of a purely naturalistic, atheistic worldview and philosophy. And it is in that worldview that it is an absolutely true statement. It means nothing, and I gain nothing. Jesus seconds this conclusion in Matthew chapter uh, 16 when he says, What will it profit a man if he gains, there's that word, the whole world, but he forfeits his life? Jesus is also asking a question there with an implied answer, right? Nothing. You gain nothing. So how are we going to watch Solomon prove his point? Well, that's what comes next. He's going to support this conclusion that everything is vanity, beginning with his examination of the realm of nature, creation. And we'll move, again, this is the part we're going to move through pretty quickly. I know it's getting hot. I know that we've already rocked this thing, but we've got to get through at least these first 11. I was supposed to go through the whole chapter, guys, so I'm already in trouble with the other pastors. So just, we're going to get through 11. Oh, they'll find out. That's why they installed cameras. All right, verse 4, check it out. Here we go. These are, the, these are the observations he's made about creation to bring him to this conclusion that everything's vanity and there is no gain. There's no profit, okay? Verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, people live, people die, people are forgotten, but the earth just keeps going. The universe just keeps trudging, uh, trudging along. And he says it almost as if it's better to be the one dead to be uh, the human in the generation than to be the one remaining, the universe. Why? Verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. Monotony, drudgery, the depressing cycle of predictability. Even the sun is exhausted. Even the sun is stuck in a pointless rut, and it can't get out of it. It can't bring newness and meaning. It's on a loop. The wind? How about that? Same thing. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around the wind goes on its circuits, the wind returns. It's the same thing. What's he talking about? He's talking about the jet stream. Yes, your Bible's smart. Did I say that before? He even finds the jet stream boring. Depressing, pointless, which is interesting because we tend to view the wind as something that's free and spontaneous and, and even exciting, unbridled, right? But Solomon finds it depressing. He finds the wind depressing too. Empty, meaningless, pointless, futile. What else can he throw in there? How about the water? Verse 7, all streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Same thing. Water is stuck too. Even water is stuck in a cycle of predictability, trapped in a per perpetual cycle of meaningless exercise. I want you to notice this. Notice how Solomon's not only not amazed with the intricately balanced science of these created and complex systems, but he's bored with them. Yawn. Here's something else that's very interesting. It's the complete opposite of what we see coming out of his dad, David, when he surveys God's creation in places like Psalm 19, where he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, they pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor their words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their word to the ends of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, 
which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man running its course with joy. On and on and on he goes with this glorious description of what he sees, what he has interpreted to him when he observes creation around him. It's completely different than Solomon, right? David's like, all of it screams about your power, Lord. All of it screams about your purpose. All of it screams about your handiwork. All of it screams about your greatness and your character, about something altogether more meaningful. And Solomon's like, looks at it and goes, what a bummer. Like, what a bummer, you know? What a drag. How boring this is. How upsetting all of this is to look at. How can they interpret the same thing so differently? We'll get there soon. Solomon's altogether unimpressed. In fact, he loathes creation. This is what he's clearly communicating to us in verse 8, where he says there, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon needs a hug. You know what I mean? The student needs a hug. It's like, bring it in, buddy. <laughs> Let me just hug you for a minute. Or, or I can hand you a, a rope, like one or the other, you know? His conclusion concerning the created universe as it currently exists is that it's always striving, but never arriving. Always striving, never arriving when it comes to real meaning. It's just working, working, working with it without ever producing anything new. And if that is true about the universe, what does that mean for a little, tiny, insignificant speck like me? If the big thing, the universe, is pointless, then the small thing, a human being, is infinitely so. We're just on a treadmill of life, just existing. When this is the dominant worldview, guys, and it is the dominant worldview, the stuff we're hearing right now, it is no wonder, it is no surprise that suicides are through the roof. None at all. Mass shootings, cool thing to do now, on the rise. It's no wonder when this is the dominant worldview. Drug addiction, not a surprise. The legalization of those drugs, so that that which we're addicted to and is ruining our lives can be easier to get. No surprise when this is the dominant worldview. It's no surprise. It's no surprise that divorces are through the roof. It is no surprise that sexual freedom is through the roof, leading to an incalculable amount of babies murdered. It's no surprise when this is the dominant worldview. Why should it surprise us? It's all, just, it's all just life in a meaningless box and nothing else. Life's meaningless, we're meaningless, so let's eat, drink, be merry, and kill each other, for tomorrow we die. Except for the kill part, that's in 1 Corinthians 15. Right? By the way, if you and I are not careful, even as Christians, we can fall into the same sort of philosophical trap that Solomon is presenting to us here if we're not careful, we can fall into it too. That we're just stuck on the treadmill of life without any real meaning. Have any of you ever done that as a Christian? I do it regularly, I'll be the, that's fine. I do it, where I stop paying attention to this and it all becomes about this, right? Just going through the actions. I'm doing dishes again. I did these same dishes three days ago and now I'm cleaning them again because they're dirty again and you know what? I'm going to be doing them in three more days. I'm going to put them away, clean them, and they're going to be dirty again in three days. That's awesome. Like we can get, tra we can get trapped in that kind of thinking, right? Laundry. I just washed these clothes. What are they doing back here again? Right? Vacuuming. Mowing the lawn. Why, is, why does the grass keep growing? Cutting your hair. All right. Some of us have that problem. So I that for, dude, there's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of pretty shiny heads in this room. I never noticed that before. What's up with that? Right? It goes on and on. Washing your car. I'm going to have to wash it again. It's going to get dirty again. Brushing your teeth. I have to do that like every morning and every night. Like, what's up? Doing this again. Going to work. 
saying you're sorry. It just goes on and on and on. And see, it's easy for us to look at it and go, this is all life consists of. And it's, and it's tiring. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that meaningless existence. But let's carry on. Verses 9 through 11. Let's take all three of these in one, in one swoop. <coughs> what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. He even made it rhyme. Isn't that cool? 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. According to verses 9 through 11, we're not going to be able to be as rad as we had hoped we would be. We're just not that cool. And that's a bummer for me because I really wanted to be cool. We're probably not going to come up with something new. We're probably not going to be as special and unique to the world as we might have hoped we would. We probably won't come up with something completely groundbreaking like we were certain that we would when we were kids. I knew I did. I knew I was going to change everything somehow when I was a kid. Solomon says, someone's been there, done that, and wrote the book. If you don't believe him, like, just go to Barnes & Noble. Go to a section. Like, I, I, have, I have buddies that keep telling me, like, other pastor friends and friends in the Christian world, they're like, dude, like, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to start writing books? When are you going to start writing books? Because I guess that's the cool thing for pastors to do now. And I'm looking, every time I get interested in a certain subject or to write on something, it's already been written 1,200 times over. Like, all of them. Like, they're there. And I'm sure that almost all of them are written way better than I would be able to write it. You know, what do you do with that? So that, so that balloon gets popped too. Meaningless. And it, and, it, and it really stinks because we want to break the cycle of predictability and the drudgery of life so bad, so bad, just to feel as though we're experiencing or doing something new, discovering something new. I believe this is why we all sit around and say we hate the media, but we can't wait for it to bring us the next headline, the next piece of gossip, the next drama, the next crisis. We're waiting for it. We're even hoping for it. And if there isn't a big one that comes in a while, we'll settle for a small one. Me and my wife, we used to, uh, when we moved up here in 93, we were super poor. We had a little television. We didn't have cable or satellite or anything. And so, like, at night, we would, like, sit on the couch and uh, put the antennas in exactly the right place so that we could get two channels. And one of them was Z21. And if any of you watched local news back in 1993, you would know that it was non-existent. There was nothing. We would laugh because they would try to come up with something as if it was a big deal. And it wasn't a big deal. We came up from Southern California. We know what big deals are. They'd report one night, like, hey, the, you know, this gust of wind came up and blew this trash can across the road, and we got someone reporting there live right now. And me and my wife would be like, Pfft. like, what is this? You know what I mean? We're, we're, we're always looking for something. And if we don't have something, then we'll create something. Because we want something to break the monotony, the predictability of the depressing reality of what it is we live in. Now it's the heat wave, I guess, right? You're hearing it right? Heat wave 2021 is probably like how they're billing it. You know what I mean? As if it's never got to 100 in Central Oregon. It's ridiculous, but it's something we can jump on and go, oh, here's something to get excited about. Not really. It's been done. It's been done before. It's really not that exciting. Isn't this fun? Fashion is that way. It's really not new. We're really just recycling. We call it vintage. Those are old things that are now cool again, right? I think I've seen a few mullets in the last couple of months, which is just, that should never be recycled. That should never come back. I think neon comes back a little bit sometimes. Like, that's old. That's not new. That's all recycled. It's vintage, right? Movies. I will, ne I will never pay what they want for me to go into a movie theater because it's all recycled. It's all superhero stuff that's been around for forever, or it's remakes of things that should not be touched. Like Mary Poppins. Don't ever give me a Mary Poppins without Van Dyke, right? 
and Andrews. Nobody else belongs in that film, but they did it. It wasn't new. I love when people come to our home because if you've ever been to me and Carrie's home, what we do, what, our favorite color is rust. And our favorite kind of item is rusty items. And so like everywhere all over our house is just old rusty items. And um, it's funny when people come in, like last week I had my sister-in-law and my niece there and they're just tripping out, walking through the house looking at things they've never seen before. Like she picked up, my sister-in-law picked up this marshmallow toaster off of our table, which it is a weird looking contraption. And she was just fascinated with it. That thing's old. It's not new, it's old. It goes, it goes way back, but it was new to her, you know? Verse 11 reminds us that no matter, going back to us, how rad we think we are, history isn't stopping for us. It will continue to move on because that's what it does. People and events that were once big, <clears throat> excuse me, shrink as time marches on. I used to love Jay Leno, the late night, when he would go out onto the sidewalks in Hollywood and he would just, um, um, he would just uh, quiz people on basic questions of United States history. Did you watch these? It was so sad, but so entertaining and so ridiculous at times you thought this had to be like planned. Like there's no way that this person really doesn't know this, right? Like he would ask him questions like simple ones, like who are the four faces on Mount Rushmore? right? And, and people wouldn't know. At least the ones they showed, they would show edits of just tons and tons of people that just blew it. And they'd be like, what did Abraham Lincoln do? You know, like what was he most known for? And they'd be like, like he invented the telephone? It's like, no, nah, not exactly. Close. No, not at all. Like stuff like that, like re ridiculous, right? And I'm going to ask you right now, who was the 10th president of the United States of America? Let's see how Lapinian, how redneck you guys really are. The 10th president, you don't know, do you? That sucks. That really stinks for that dude, doesn't it? That stinks for that dude. Who was the 21st president of the United States? That stinks for him, too. John Tyler, number 10. Nope, that means you don't know. Chester Arthur, number 21. Who cares? <laughs> like, what did they do? Who cares? These were presidents of the United States. And you don't know who they are. And we're less than 200 years deep. That's pretty sad. Solomon's right again. He's right that it's all vanity. It's all vanity. A few, I, I mean... You guys are really glad you came to church today, right? Some of you are even like, okay, it's time to find a new church because they're, they're just starting this book. They're probably going to be here for like five months. So um, time to go somewhere else. But a few of you are like, I'm glad that I came today because I'm not mowing the lawn anymore and I'm not doing the dishes anymore and I'm not washing my clothes anymore. I'm not even going to change my underwear anymore. It's all vanity. Some of you dudes are like, yes, I've been waiting for this sermon for a long time. All right, let's close. This is getting, the heat's getting to us. All of this seems super morbid and very crazy and very much like it does not belong in the Bible unless, unless we are certain to zero in on the most key phrase that's used over and over and over again in this book. And that phrase is, under the sun. In our text today, we find it in verse 3, and we find it in verse 9. Under the sun. Which put simply means without God. Apart from God. Now it makes more sense, right? Everything he's saying is absolutely true, apart from God. Absolutely true. This is what life apart from God looks like. This is what life apart from God feels like. This is what you're left with when you simply exist inside the box and there's nothing outside the box. This is what you're left with when you're living life under the sun apart from the one who created the sun the one who was over the sun. 
I mentioned earlier that we too as Christians are also susceptible to falling into the trap of vanity and purposelessness in existence. And it isn't a mystery as to how it happens. If we fail at any time to acknowledge God in our lives as the source of life and meaning and value and purpose, then be prepared to forfeit life and meaning and value and purpose in whatever it is that you're doing. Because that's the way it works. See, God is the difference. God in our lives is the, the difference. To know God and to be known by God is what makes it all go from meaningless existence to abundant life. When Jesus stepped onto the scene into his creation, he made all things new. Not in the sense that it all immediately got fixed, but in the sense that meaning, purpose, value was now given a body, a face, a life, a reason in the form of a savior and a redeemer and a cross. And it is because of that that the Apostle Paul can say, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. See, our, our newfound relationship with the God of the universe gives us newfound insight into what we're doing here and why we do it. It gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. It gives us direction. It changes everything. Solomon says that life under the, with life under the sun, you can work your fingers to the bone and have nothing in the end to show for it, profit nothing, gain nothing. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, in Christ, your labor is not in vain. What you're working for, what you're toiling at as a child of God is not empty. It is not futile. It is not pointless. That's encouraging. How is that so? Because of what and who we now live for, labor for, right? Paul goes on to say in Philippians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, even the bleakest, most depressing reality we can think of in life, which is death, is also gain now too. Even a walk through a cemetery can be something to thank God for. How is this possible? Life in the sun, S-O-N, rather than just life under the sun, S-U-N. I know that's cliche and stupid, but I wanted to do it anyway. Jesus is the definitive difference between a worldview of meaninglessness and a worldview of meaning. That's why we have that on our banner. Having said that, you know what the world needs. The world needs what we have, the world needs what we know, and we need to bring it to them. The world needs somebody better than Solomon. Solomon needs somebody better than Solomon, right? The world needs a better son of David. The world needs a better son of David. And they got one. What is it that Jesus says in Matthew 12, 42? Now one who is greater than Solomon is here. It is all about the Lord. That is the difference between a pointless, vain life and a life that holds overwhelming meaning and value. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we praise your holy name that that these thoughts that we read today, these realities, these human realities that we read today um, are no longer ones that, that we have to live in. We thank you, God, that you have brought us a solution to the bleakness and the pointlessness and the predictability of all things just running on a loop with no purpose, value, meaning. How glorious it is to know how untrue that is now. Thank you, Lord, for revealing it to us. It's not flesh and blood that has. It's you. It's you writing, allowing books like this, breathed out by you, to be preserved so that we can come to them and see you and find you. Something so much more 
something so much more above everything this world has to offer. God, I don't even know why we still look there when we do. But help us when we do to remember you. There is no one like you. There is nothing like you. There is no happiness that can be found or attained or achieved other than what comes from knowing you. Help us to be a people that bring this message of hope to the hopeless. In Jesus' name, amen.